Yes, this is EM Case's Best Case Ever mini podcast series, and I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman. This time around, we have none other than Dr. Richard Levitan. We're here at Smack in Chicago, and I have the pleasure and honor of having with us Dr. Richard Levitan, the world-famous airway educator and innovator, and he's going to tell us his best case ever. Rich, let it rip. Thank you, Anton, for the invite and the opportunity to chime in. You know, I just want to sort of shout out to the Smack world. I really appreciate getting the feedback from the folks I meet, and I appreciate the introduction. I'm an airway enthusiast. I I sometimes reluctantly uh, wear the title of being an airway expert. My expertise is in intubating the dead. I have intubated more dead people than anybody on the planet. It's kind of an odd distinction, but it's true. And so I want to share with you my best case ever because it actually involves intubating the dead and comes back to what I believe after 12 years of monthly cadaver courses, I I really have a a completely different perspective on the way I teach, the way I train, the way I think about the problems in emergency medicine. So for me, this case crystallizes that. In the inner city urban American war, it's a tough gig, and I did it for 23 years. And I was working. It was a busy shift. It's 11 o'clock at night. I have 40 people in the waiting room. I hear overhead trauma, emergency medicine, team B to the trauma OR, emergency medicine, team B to the trauma OR. You know, we had so much penetrating trauma in Philly that at Jefferson, there was actually an OR in the ER and you could press a button. And these people who had central box wounds, people who needed to be in the operating room instantly, you press a button and poof, trauma would appear. Anesthesia would appear. You'd have a room filled with about 20, 25 people instantly with tremendous resources. And, uh, you know, if you're going to survive a central box wound, that was pretty extra, uh, you know, extraordinary to have that capability. But basically overhead, they announced this gunshot and, uh, it's team B. I am on team A. And I think to myself, you know, I've got so many people to work through that uh, it didn't bother me that I wasn't going to the trauma OR. And I look up, actually, and I was in one of my rooms, and, and I saw this crowd of people go by, compressions are en route, and everybody's yelling, gunshot to the chest. So, young man, four gunshots to the chest. EMS had placed a King LT, and they rolled into the trauma bay, and I heard overhead that it was the other team managing the case, not me. I dealt with my sick patient who I was dealing with. And while in the room, somebody comes in about five, eight minutes later and says, Rich, we need you in the trauma OR. And I thought to myself, A, there's 25 people in there. B, I'm on team A, it's team B. So I'm like, no, 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 you don't need me. I'm on A and it's B. They go, no, 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 I know you're on A, but they're having trouble with the airway. And I go, trauma's there and anesthesia's there. I I don't need to go into this airway come on in for the airway. So, all right, I go into the trauma bay uh, in the trauma OR, and there's a crowd of people about this patient. Trauma has thoracotomized the patient. We are looking over the drapes at the lungs. The lungs are not moving. Anesthesia is holding a tracheal tube 
connecting up to a bag, squeezing the bag, and the lungs are not moving. There is tremendous amounts of vomitus about the upper airway. And I'm looking over, and with the thorax open, the lungs should be moving. That's not a way you want to verify your tube location to find out you're not in. But basically, the lungs are not moving. So I turn to the anesthetist and I say, and I'm using the British uh, expression there, but I turn to the anesthesiologist and I say, are you sure you're in? And this person says, there's only vomit. I can't tell. I go, do you mind if I take a look? And, you know, they reply, sure. You know, there's an anesthesia attending. There's two residents. The trauma team is distracted with the thoracotomy, actually, but the tube is not in. So, you know, I had this interesting realization. I have been a vomitologist my whole life. I have been taking airways in my cadaver lab, draining suction bottles, filling up the oropharynx with vomit, with secretions, just to drain it and teach my epiglottoscopy. You know, there's a crowd of people there. I have just volunteered to take over the airway that an anesthesiologist has been managing unsuccessfully. I pick up my laryngoscope with two fingers. I'm distracting tongue and jaw. And in my mind, I am in this highly incrementalized mode of scissor technique, sticking in the yank hour, draining the swamp, finding the uvula, advancing the blade slightly further, finding the palatal arch, advancing slightly further down into the hypopharynx, finding the epiglottis edge, advancing the yank hour slightly further down, draining, dropping the blade into the vallecula, changing my grip. So now I'm gripping with more force where the handle meets the blade, extending force down the blade, reaching around with my right hand after I use the anchor one more time, reaching around with my right hand, bimanual laryngoscopy, full view of the cords, drop the tube in, the lungs go up and the trauma doc yells out, hey, the tube's in. And, uh, you know, I walk out of the room and the ER nurse who was watching because there was just a crowd of people just does a little fist bump on me as I walk out. And it was one of those cases that just made me realize, you know, that this so-called difficult airway, you know, it's difficult if you approach it without a plan. It's difficult if you're not practicing with the mental fortitude needed to do it. And for me, you know, walking into that room and realizing, wait a minute, I've intubated more dead people than anybody on the planet. I'm a vomitologist. I totally have this case. It was a head game and it wasn't a difficult airway. But this person who is highly skilled, you know, with years and years of experience as an anesthesiologist, had trouble with this airway because they were out of their comfort zone. And it was just this educational realization for me that the way we talk to ourselves, the way we frame the challenges, the way we compartmentalize, incrementalize tasks, these are all critical to our success. And it, uh, it was just a very rewarding moment to meet that challenge because I have had no shortage of cases throughout my career where I realized I did not have the insight. I did not compartmentalize the task. I didn't incrementalize it. And I didn't know why I had failed. And this was obviously the other extreme. So my best case ever. Great. That was, that was awesome. So what would you suggest to our listeners who are just starting out in emergency medicine in terms of how they can mentally prepare for challenging intubations? How should, how should they start off mentally preparing? You had mentioned incrementalization, but even before that, what kind of tips do you have for the listeners in terms of just 
cognitively preparing for these kinds of things? Yeah. So, you know, I more and more approach every task in emergency medicine with an awareness of what stress does to me. And I am highly susceptible to it. And so I suture with my elbows in. I push the patients into rooms with overhead lights. I will sit down, rest my hands on the patient in a manner that I'm not in space. You know, I, I used to approach everything with emergency medicine kind of focused on trying to get it done, but not thinking about setting up the steps that are most likely to make it succeed. So now with everything I'm doing, whether it's a dental block, whether I'm taking a foreign body out of the eye, suturing, you name it, I am thinking about the ergonomics of my hands, about how I stabilize myself in space, what the impact of stress is on my performance. And so in the airway, there's a whole collection of tasks, uh, of procedures that I'm doing to minimize stress. And I think the most important one, whether you're picking up a video laryngoscope, a direct laryngoscope, a VLDL device, a hyperangulated device, whatever that device is that you're putting, rolling down the tongue, pick it up with two fingers, hold it as light as possible. Appreciate that the first step here is distracting tongue and jaw, following the curvature of the blade down, dabbing the yank hour, finding uvula palatal arch, which points to the epiglottis, and then worrying about laryngoscopy, and then lastly worrying about tube delivery. So I take the entire task, it's epiglottoscopy, laryngoscopy, tube delivery, compartmentalized, and then within each of those are multiple other steps. But I've started now thinking about this in every area of airway management. You know, on the surgical airway, I've been thinking a lot about why we don't cut when we should, and you know, what we've been focusing on is we've gotten the first steps wrong. You know, the first step in the surgical airway is not to identify the cricothyroid membrane. It has been an impediment to our jumping in when we should. The first step is, you know, a vertical incision midline and your finger will verify. But, you know, so I got into this whole thing instead of one finger, one centimeter without fine motor control, trying to find the cricothyroid membrane now into, you know, five finger course movement, rock the rhomboidal larynx, find the thyroid because that's the external home base, rock the rhomboid, find vertical, then your finger will find the CTM after your vertical incision. But, you know, my response to hypoxia, for instance, I used to look at that and think, well, you know, I have to run around to the head of the bed. I have to open up the plastic bag while I'm freaking out and the nurse is yelling the pulse ox is 60 I have to connect up the face mask to the Ambu bag, open the thing up, plug the thing in. If you think about that, you need eight arms. I think it's the ass-backwards approach to response to hypoxia. I think the first response to hypoxia should be with the nurse. You slide the patient up the bed. You crank the bed all the way forward. You put O's on the nose. You crank that guy to 15. You grab the mandible behind the angle of the jaw and you yank and you pressurize the nasopharynx, you blow O's straight into the trachea. You then get your non-rebreather bag, put 15 liters on the face. And after you've done those two things, you ask the nurse to set up the BVM with the PEEP valve if you need to bag them. But I think we need to rethink a lot of what we do in emergency medicine. The most important steps to our response in crisis should be the first steps. And we have not really thought through what the first steps are. You know, we've made, like, if you look at laryngoscopy and intubation, the first question is, do you see the courts? Do you see the courts? Do you see the courts? That's not the first question. The first question should be, you know, can you find the epiglottis? Uh, you know, the first step in the surgical airway has been, you know, cricothyroid, cricothyroid, where's the CTM? Where's the CTM? That's not the first step. The first step is identifying the larynx, rock the rhomboid, go vertical. Your finger will find it. The first response to 
hypoxemia should not be bag them in a flat position with half your alveoli collapsed with your stomach volume pressing up on the diaphragm and all the rest of it with your stomach, you know, contents draining out your oropharynx because you have them at the same level. The first step should be shoot the patient up the bed, yank the head of the bed up, yank the mandible forward, pressurize the nasal pharynx. It blows open the soft palate, shoots O's right down in the trachea, then put an unrebreather on, then bag them with a peep valve if you need to. But I, I really think on the cognitive level, we have to really rethink our whole procedural training. We have filled it with complexity. We filled it with fear. We filled it with a lot of stuff that is distracting us from doing well in those moments of crisis. And we've all learned the hard way that those initial responses, sometimes those seconds, those minutes matter. And we need to rethink that. Man, that was totally brilliant. I love that this kind of thinking has the potential to bring around a paradigm shift in the way we think about procedures in emergency medicine. You know, get rid of the fear, get rid of the complexity. Simplified incremental steps will pave the road to success. So to hear more from Dr. Levitan, join us on the next episode when we discuss the trials and tribulations, tips and tricks in the emergency management of the obese patient. Together with critical care educator and podcaster, Dr. Andrew Slois, and Dr. David Barbick from University of British Columbia, a prominent researcher in obesity in the ED. So until next time, take it easy. Oh, I am just a vagabond, a drifter on the run, an eloquent profanity. It rolls right off my tongue And I have dined in palaces Drunk wine with kings and queens But darling, oh darling You're the best thing I ever seen Won't you roll my easy Oh slow and easy Take my independence With no apprehension, no tension You walk in